Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Considered by many to be the first Greeks, the Mycenaeans elevated their culture through the conquest of others. Located primarily on the Greek mainland, these people would come to rule over thousands of their own before setting their sights on the Minoan neighbors to the south. With the island of Crete only a short distance away, the Mycenaeans conquered the Minoan people and ended their way of life. Although a complete victory, it was only then that the Mycenaeans truly flourished as they adopted and adapted Minoan civilization to make them the superpower of the region. On this episode, we discuss the rise and fall of the Mycenaeans, the first Greeks. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 2 of the series, we're discussing the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the lasting legacy they leave behind that helped shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. In this episode, we're continuing our discussion of the emergence of the European civilization, how it owes its origins to the larger Near Eastern world nearby, and how it fits into the larger ancient world as a whole. In the previous episode, we dealt with a group of people that remain enigmatic in our understanding in the history of the region, but critically important in the development of a larger European world, known as the Minoan Civilization. Based on their island of Crete, sitting directly in the center of the ancient world floating in the Mediterranean Sea, they used their primary gifts of geography to set themselves apart as one of the greatest trading peoples of the ancient world. We question, for much of history, what role these Minoan civilization and these Minoan peoples played in the larger development of the European identity. How European were they? And how much were they the larger product of the ancient world nearby? Well, with the Minoans, and this is something that we're going to carry in into today's discussion of the Mycenaean world, we see that the more we learn about the interaction these people had with the larger world around them, the more we see that they are the byproduct of a unified ancient world. The trading prowess that the Minoans had, which touched the lives of the Egyptians, the Near Easterners, uh, the Assyrians, as well as those who we talk about today on mainland Greece. Now again, the discussion largely for the rest of the season here on Wartime is going to focus on how the Greek civilization develops, ultimately leading to how the Greek civilization interacts with the larger ancient world as a whole. But here we get our first real introduction into that world. Many people begin the Greek story with the Minoan civilization. By most accounts, they are separate and different enough 
that we can say that they aren't necessarily the start to the Greek civilization, but perhaps the spark that can ignite the Greek civilization, perhaps the great catalyst of empire on the Greek mainland. But today the Greek mainland is our focus, because a group of people who have lived there for some time are going to directly benefit from the proximity of the Cretans nearby. The Minoan civilization will spread and ultimately be conquered by the people we'll talk today, known as the Mycenaeans. Now there must be before we begin, and we can't stress this enough, a spatial understanding a geomorphological understanding, a geographic understanding of what we mean when we use the term Greece. If you use a modern map of Greece, and I've already told you that the Minoans, based on the island of Crete, are not necessarily considered Greek in the ancient world, you'd be thoroughly confused, because the island of Crete represents a significant portion of Greek territory today. Again, we have to understand this is a process. It takes quite a long time to get to that point. But when we talk about the Greek mainland, we're really challenging ourselves to reinterpret the way we think of one unified people. Nothing about the Greeks, at least in their minds, and at least without the help of an outside force, will really allow them to ever think of themselves politically or ethnically as a unified group. Whenever we talk about Greece, we're going to talk about regions of Greece like Thessaly, like Macedon, like the Peloponnesus, and of course, like Crete. I really want you to have a solid sense of the geography of Greece to, have, uh, to help make more sense of this story. Starting in the south, what we talked about in a previous episode of Wartime was the island of Crete. It was a long, rectangular-shaped island sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. But as you move north, you're going to approach mainland Greece. And one of the most noticeable landforms that you will see are what the Greeks called the Peloponnesus. And the Peloponnesus, uh, in layman's terms, in the simplest terms, if you're looking at a map, resembles, at least to me, uh, a giant outstretched hand in a way. It's a very jagged peninsula. Uh, it's barely a peninsula, but it is connected to the larger Greek mainland. In the future, this will be home uh, to city-states that we all know today, most notably the Spartans. But for us, the Peloponnesus, that hand-shaped piece of land, very square, very rigid, is where the story of the Mycenaean civilization begins. As you move further north, you'll see what we call the Attic Peninsula, its most famous city-state being Athens. You move farther north from there, you encounter Thessaly, and as you move really to the heart of Europe, you'll see, touching it, uh, the Greek land known as Macedon. On the other side of the Aegean Sea, directly uh, due east of the Attic Peninsula and the Peloponnesus, are a series of islands, all very critical in the development of the Greek world, all with their own unique histories. But on the far end of it is a piece of land we're already very familiar with, known as Anatolia, or Asia Minor. Now, when we think of Anatolia or Asia Minor, we tend to think of it as a very eastern place, a very foreign place, part of the Persian Empire, dominated locally by the Hittite Empire. That's all true. But on the very edge of Anatolia uh, is a group of Greek settlements in the future we'll know as Ionia, or the Ionian Greeks. 
So what we're trying to do just through this exercise, and it'll be much easier with a map in front of you, is just have a sense that the Greek world is much bigger and much more diverse than anything we've really experienced yet. And that diversity and the understanding of that diversity is all going to play into how Greeks see one another. What I've just described to you, though, is going to be Greece at its classical height. And we aren't there yet. But what we would like to do is really reduce it down to its beginning. Use deductive logic to locate where the Greek civilization really begins and how it takes off from there. Now, the Greek mainland is a very interesting place as far as we're concerned and as this story begins. It's a very rocky place. It's a very mountainous place. When you compare it to uh, perhaps some of the low-lying, flat, rolling plains of Central Europe, the mainland of Greece doesn't necessarily lend itself well to farming. Now, make no mistake, farming is a critical part of the Greek world. But you'll never see that massive full-scale farming that will come to define a lot of other regions in Europe at the time. Everything we've experienced so far this season has been part of the ancient Near East or Egypt, where farming opportunities are very limited, but where they're located, they're very prosperous. Europe is a whole different story, a very different climate, a very different landscape. And the Greeks, I like to think, sort of are in between. They do have the climatic blessings of a Mediterranean world, but they also have uh, its own limitations. It's sort of the midway point between the very unforgiving desert regions of the Middle East and the very fertile plains of Central Europe. But it's in this mainland part of what we think of as today as Greece, the Peloponnesus, that we see the story of the Mycenaean world begin. All too often when we talk about the Mycenaeans, we talked about a marginalized people. We talk about a people that are a step in between what we know to be classical Greece and what we know to be the strength of the Minoan world. I really believe the Mycenaeans are owed their own episode for this reason. How would you describe the Mycenaeans initially? Well, they're a bit of a conundrum for a lot of historians, because for most of their history, they are a small, secondary people. They are a tribal people. They are seemingly a backward people, but they will eventually flourish into what we think of as the very first Greek culture as we would recognize it on Earth. They're an advanced culture. They're people of science. They're people of reason. They're people of faith. They're people of great power and great prowess. We know for a fact that we found Mycenaean artifacts as far away as the former Soviet Georgia and the larger Middle East. So we can't minimize these people, but what's so confusing about them, and in some cases I think so fascinating, is the fact that it seems that their culture, not in its totality, but in a lot of it, clearly the majority, is really just borrowed from other people, and then adapted to suit their own needs. It's really a fascinating story. They clearly are influenced by the Minoans in their culture, which we'll talk about, but even their artwork has elements of the Babylonian world and elements of the Egyptian world and elements of the Hittite world and Anatolia all combined into one. The Mycenaeans are very much a people in transition, but I think a people that are very revealing and very reflective of the larger world around them. Now, let's have our introduction to the Mycenaean people. When we think of the early Mycenaeans, one of the things we have to consider in a microcosm is how populations grow. For most of the, say, uh, year 2000 BCE to about 1600 BCE, the Mycenaeans are a very limited people. 
They've got a growing population. They're really trying to carve out their place in a world that's truly dominated by the Minoans on Crete. As they try to make more of a name for themselves, they're expanding their opportunities in trade. They're beginning to grow food on a pretty large scale. And they're beginning to support their population. Now, this may just be uh, a discussion of humanity in general. But one of the things we see time and time again, particularly in this season of wartime, is that as a people grows and as their commodity grows and as their material wealth grows, they begin to change fundamentally on a socioeconomic level as well. What we begin to see occur are that small, regional, tribal leaders gain more and more power. And what they gradually transform into uh, is what we think of as warlords and ultimately uh, kings and monarchies, a very rich, very wealthy upper class. Now, when we look at, say, for example, the Minoans, I think a comparison is the best way to talk about the Mycenaeans. You can see some major differences. The Minoans were a seemingly advanced people. They were a trade-based economy, so experiencing the outside world was very much in their collective cultural DNA. They were warlike peoples when necessary, uh, but we would think of them much more as a more socialized group of people who knew how to interact in the larger, diverse world around them. That's very different than the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans were warlike people, and not a naval power, but they were people that valued the fight, that valued the battle. In their world, they were constantly battling one another. And very quickly, small urban centers uh, began to develop, probably most notably to you, would be Athens. Athens was an early Mycenaean city, and of course it's still around today. But these are not a people who are open to the outside world. They are a people who will understand the value of the outside world, but early on they're a very unique group of individuals, again very focused on preserving the me before the we. Now so much of the ancient world, and you know this by now, is not necessarily based on what we understand from their writings and their stories, but it's based on what we find they leave behind. Archaeology is the story. Again, I'm not an archaeologist, although I have a great appreciation for the field. I'm a historian. But we'll talk about the contributions of archaeology to get a better sense of who they are and what we know about them. One of the best ways we can look at the Mycenaeans to see how they represent themselves, how they control themselves, is how uh, they bury their dead. And the reason we say that is because these are some of the most prominent archaeological remains that we find. But what we see early on when they bury their dead are that you'll often have decades or centuries worth of families buried in the same place, one on top of the other. There was clearly a sense that maybe royal families, not the best word in terms of being present, but there was a sense that the community, the tribe, sort of superseded the individual. But over time, as we move closer to the year 1600 BCE, the tombs we find begin to change, and they begin to change at a fundamental level. The uh, typical shaft graves, that's what we would call these communal burials, really begin to disappear. And what we see emerge out of this new world uh, are something we can think of as a tholos-style tomb. What this is, is basically one tomb, one burial for one person. 
Now that at a face value may not be very impressive to you, but to the archaeologist and historian, what that shows us is that this is a culture that's developing a ruling class. It's developing an upper crust. It's developing a social elite. It's becoming stratified. And as that happens, the very human desires for political power and wealth are going to grow as well. In that regard, when we think about the Mycenaeans, we have to remember, just like the Minoans, they are part of a much larger interlocked, interconnected world. The Egyptians, uh, the Near Eastern peoples, the people of Anatolia, the Hittites, uh, and the Minoans are all benefiting from a shared culture. We're seeing peoples like the Phoenicians already that have sailed the Mediterranean Sea showing the value and the cosmopolitan nature that a large extended trade network can bring. And the Mycenaeans, although they're backwards by most standards of the time, and although they tend to be a very warlike, insular people, are a part of that world. And it's really only a matter of time until they begin to explode and expand out of it. They're seeking wealth, they're seeking power, while they've really sort of maxed out their revenue on the Peloponnesus of Greece, they need to expand. It's sensible, and it's very easy to see that their closest target and the ripest cherry for the picking, so to speak, is just 70 miles to their south at Crete. Now, we know Crete is the home of the Minoan peoples. We know they were an advanced people with a very large navy. And in the previous episodes of wartime, we've talked about the fact that they were severely crippled by a massive tsunami that was probably the result of the eruption of the volcano Thera on the island of Santorini. But we also stress that that tidal wave, that tsunami, did not necessarily finish off the Minoans. They were severely weakened by it, but they were finished off by invasion. Now, what was that invasion? Well, that's where we see the Mycenaeans, as we know them, really enter the historical record and the larger world as we know it. The great invasion of the island of Crete, and certainly the greatest achievement of the Mycenaeans, came in about the year 1450 BCE. By the time you're at 1450 BCE, you're seeing the tail end of the Minoan civilization really disappearing, and you're seeing the emergence of the Mycenaeans coming to replace them as a dominant superpower. And this is where we get our first glimpse into the real challenges of studying Mycenaean history. The Mycenaeans are who we consider to be the first Greeks. They're from the Greek mainland. But for most of history that is our understanding of history, we sort of always considered the Minoans to be the very first Greeks. And as archaeology progresses and as we find more discoveries, we're beginning to see why that's a problem. The Minoans were not the first Greeks. But when the Mycenaeans, who were, by most standards, considered the first Greeks, took over their island, they did very little to destroy the Minoan world. For the most part, they saw they were dealing with an advanced people, and they adopted many of the traits of the Minoan world. So the Mycenaeans, we would consider to be the initial Greeks, but we always confuse that title with the Minoans because the Mycenaeans basically, on a wholesale basis, adopted Minoan tradition and Minoan culture. Remember we talked about the fact that the center of Minoan life, politically, economically, religiously, socially and culturally, was always the palace complex, and their grandest palace complex was the great palace at Knossos. Well, whenever the Mycenaeans discover that system, no surprise, they keep it. Now, many temples are destroyed, probably as a result of war, but the palace of Knossos remains intact, and it becomes the real heart of the Mycenaean power base in the region. 
the palace building structure complex will begin to spread throughout not only the island of Crete, where it had existed for many centuries already, but back to the original Mycenaean homeland on the Peloponnesus on mainland Greece. Now, to this point, I think we've really explored the Minoan concept of the palace. But what I really want to talk about now is a bit of archaeological theory, and perhaps the challenges of archaeology. Whenever we look at the mainland of Greece today, and we look at the ancient ruins left behind, we have to challenge ourselves. We have to remember what we're seeing is the remnants of a world gone by, uh, the modern state of existence of something built many years ago. Whenever archaeologists first began exploring many of these Mycenaean sites, they saw temple complexes just like the Minoans had, and they drew a direct correlation. You can't blame them for that. But you have to remember that time always piles on top of itself, and there's always in archaeology more beneath the surface. Well, some of the things that were really intriguing about the Mycenaeans were that those Minoan-style temples that we so associated with the Minoan culture were actually built over top of pre-existing sites. Sites that, as we dug further, revealed that there was already an existing Mycenaean social and cultural base in the same region before these style temples were built. So what we can see is, as the Mycenaeans conquered the island of Crete, as they conquered the Minoans, they not only adopted their culture on Crete itself, but they also took that back as part of their cultural identity and infused it into what they already had back home on mainland Greece. Very interesting and very revealing about the time period and the conceptions of Mycenaean power. Now, as historians, we have to again challenge ourselves to deal with the material we have on hand. We can try and fill in a lot of the gaps of Mycenaean history or Egyptian history or Babylonian history, but we can really only deal with the information we have at hand. While the Mycenaeans really throw a wedge, quite literally, into that style of thinking. Because we actually know a great deal, as time goes by, about who they are and what they represent. We know it was the Mycenaeans, in the year 1450 BCE, who took over the island of Crete, because of the discoveries of an archaeologist named Michael Ventris. Now, to call him an archaeologist isn't necessarily accurate. He was a linguist, he was a cryptographer, he dealt with the written word a great deal, and he operated right around the period of World War II. Now, when he was working with a lot of the artifacts found in a lot of Minoan sites, he found a series of tablets that contained what appeared to be a written language. Now, the Minoans had a written language. It was always called, by us moderns, Linear A. And these discoveries were believed to be just another extension of the Linear A language. But as Ventress began to work with these more and more, he was actually finding that, yes, these did look similar to the Linear A Minoan tablets, but he challenged the idea that these were actually just more elements of Minoan script. Because he said that these new letters, this new alphabet, this new writing system he's finding in all of these Mycenaean sites actually had much more to do with the Greek language more than the Minoan language. Of course, we have the modern conception of Greek. So he named this new script Linear B to differentiate the two. Linear A was the Minoan script. Linear B is the Mycenaean script. But when you viewed them as separate languages... When you view them not as two of the same language, what you see is the separation is vital. And it allows you to use new rules 
and new theories to translate it. If you believe it's Minoan, and you're trying to translate this new language in a Minoan way, you'll never discover how to do it. But if you view it as its own unique artifact, well, you'll do quite well. In 1939, even furthering, we saw Ventris' earliest finds. There was uh, at the Palace of Pylos, on the Greek mainland, Pylos being one of the great Mycenaean sites, an enormous cache of tablets with Linear B script written on them discovered. And when we begin to slowly but surely crack the code of Linear B, what we find is a very detailed and very enlightening history of the Mycenaeans beginning to develop. By the 1950s, it's very clear. Linear B is a Mycenaean script. It's unique. It's not a Minoan script. And with thousands of tablets on hand, a real deciphering of the language can be revealed. When this occurs, we get not a complete picture of what Mycenaean conquest looked like, but certainly a much bigger picture and a much better picture uh, in the, the average life and times of the Mycenaean world. We understand some of their past. We understand their palace system, and we know where it came from. And we can also, for the first time, confirm that Mycenaean palaces were ruled by kings. Kingship has arrived in Europe, and it will never be the same. What we're left with is a very basic understanding of the Mycenaean world. And here's some details we can probably fill out a little better. We say that the Mycenaeans really don't take off as a power until about 1600 BCE. But we also know by the time you get to 1200 BCE, it's basically all over for them. That's the end. So they have a relatively short stretch of power when we see them. But it's after this invasion of Crete in 1450, they really hit their stride and they really flourish as a civilization. So what is that civilization like? Well, the archaeology is very helpful in that regard. We begin to see palaces, like Knossos on the island of Crete, pop up all over the Peloponnesus, but we have to be very careful when we say things that compare them to the original Minoan palaces built, because they aren't exactly built the same way. There is a unique Mycenaean twist to them that really comes from what I call the cultural DNA of their people. These new palaces are beautiful, and they are grand, but they tend to be not only slightly smaller, than the Minoans, but much smaller than the Minoans. They're not uh, built with the same, uh, I suppose you could say, motivations behind them. Remember, for the Minoans, this palace really keeps them together as a people. For the Mycenaeans, I think what we see more of is that these palaces are an expression of individual power of a king more than anything else. Remember, we talked about the fact that the Mycenaeans were a warlike peoples, much more warlike than the Minoans. And we see that reflected in the way they build palaces. They not only build them smaller, more compact, but they build them in very high defensive positions. And in some cases, they build them with defensive fortifications built in. That's something we never saw in the Minoan world. But remember, this is a world of cultural fusion. This is a world of different values and different systems coming together. And quite frankly, that's exactly what most empires are. But when we view this, we have to understand how that power works. That old warlike notion of Mycenaean power never goes away. It would be disingenuous, however, to continue talking about monarchy and kingship without a little better understanding of what Mycenaean power really looked like. 
Whenever we say things like kings and palaces, we're really not necessarily saying that there's one king who rules over the entirety of the Mycenaean world. There never is, and there never will be. What the Mycenaean world really is, is a collection of very small kingdoms, all speaking the same language, living the same way, enough to say that they are a unified culture. But they're never politically unified in the way we think of it. We may hesitate to use a term like city-states in this regard, but it is much closer to that than anything we have reference to otherwise. There are many Mycenaean kings throughout mainland Greece, building palaces in the same way, with the same basic conception of what their responsibility is and what their power is. The island of Crete will always be their great conquest, but this is a civilization that will develop all over the Greek mainland. Some of the great cities that we'll see by 13th century BCE are cities like not only Mycenae, but Corinth, Olympia, Athens, Sparta, and Delphi. I mean, this is a real who's who of early Mycenaean cities, and they're really spread pretty diversely and evenly throughout the Greek, the world of the Greek mainland. You know, one of the things personally, as an, as an imperial historian, that I really love is how cultures borrow from one another and how they fuse much of what they take into fundamental parts of their own cultural being. And the Mycenaeans are great examples of this. When we talked about the Minoans, we talked about the wonderful artwork and frescoes left behind. It was very Minoan in its conception. It was very unusual at that time in the ancient world. Well, it's no surprise that in the Mycenaean world, this much more Greek world, we've already seen them borrow the temple complex and the palace structures. We've already seen them borrow a lot of their religious beliefs. But we'll also see them borrow those artistic sensibilities. And while the Minoans use that artistic sensibilities to reveal who they were, the Mycenaeans will as well. They might look very similar, but they are by no means the same. Minoan artwork showed us a lot about their society. They were a seafaring society. They were a society that valued the rights and the role of women in their world, something we didn't often see in the ancient world. But we almost never saw any form of war. Uh, that is, hand-to-hand -hand combat, armies marching in Minoan frescoes. Yet when you look at the Mycenaeans, again at first glance from the eyes of the onlooker, they look very, very similar, sometimes the same. But the themes, the themes of that art are very different. While the Minoans had their own unique cultural values, it was the Mycenaeans who also reflected their own values. In their frescoes, you see what we would describe as martial scenes. That is, scenes of hand-to-hand -hand combat, scenes of sieges on enemy cities, scenes of hunting in the, in the fields. I mean, these are things that just didn't happen in the Minoan world. But it's, I think, what makes the Mycenaeans so fascinating. And by the way, all of these sensibilities are going to continue to evolve into the larger classical Greek world that we all know and love. So the Mycenaeans give us a really great chance and a great opportunity to have a much better sense of what's going on in Europe at the time. Now, when we look at other ancient peoples who are existing Again, at about 1300 BCE, the same time as the Mycenaeans, we see some big differences. And we could look at the Hittite people, who are the dominant force uh, on the Anatolian Peninsula. We could look at the Egyptians. And one of the things we see is that their population centers, compared to the Mycenaeans, tend to be much bigger.
much bigger. So although you do have kingdoms and cities on mainland Greece all under this Mycenaean control, it's not exactly up to par with the rest of the imperial powers in the region. The larger your populations, the larger your cities have a direct correlation to the amount of wealth and prosperity associated with your kingdom. But though the Mycenaeans weren't as, say, advanced or as wealthy or powerful as some of their neighbors, they still had a very strict and very uh, practical version of controlling the land and controlling the people around them. And we can think of it like sort of a hierarchy, sort of a pyramid. At the top, you had the king. There was no question. But right below him, you had a position that loosely translates to leader of the army. Uh, he is the second in command. It makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense, considering the real uh, attachment to warfare that the Mycenaeans have. As you move down the line, you'll go through an entire host of bureaucrats and red tape and individuals who work for the king and near the king, all of which are doing quite well for themselves. And as you go to the bottom, you get to, well, quite frankly, the rest of us. But what we can say is, with a structure like that, usually what follows is a decent quality of life, at least for the people at the top. But I think what's very interesting about the Mycenaeans is how they deal with the people on the bottom. Because there is no middle class as we know it. Uh, not for another 2,000 years. I mean, a middle class is a fairly recent phenomenon. But if you were an average person living in, in the Mycenaean world, maybe you'd be a farmer, maybe you'd be a herder, maybe you'd be a laborer, uh, you would have certain luxuries that we will certainly see disappear later on uh, in the European world. Most of these people owned their own home, maybe a one-room home, maybe a two-room home, but they had something. Now, true, a lot of them did work on land, controlled by nobles, but this was not a feudal system the way we typically think of it. What we can see is that throughout the Mycenaean world, throughout Greece, uh, many people did own their own land. They uh, harvested from their own orchards and fields. They did quite well for themselves. The average Mycenaean Greek uh, would pay his taxes. Uh, he would contribute labor when necessary to the palace. Again, this sense of community taken from the Minoans is starting to emerge. But he would have a degree of freedom. Now, we don't want to overstate this. This is not what we would think of as today as a, as a democratic republic as we have in the United States of America. But it is something that I think, especially considered to the rest of the world around it, is a little bit ahead of its time. Uh, and I think a real testament to the power and, and potential, perhaps, of what the Greek world can and will become in the future. Now, I'd like to think that I've just offered a pretty glowing endorsement of the Mycenaean world. But let's not view this world through rose-colored glasses. Let's use an actual historical lens to get a better sense of who they are. The Mycenaean world absolutely, positively had slaves. There is no doubt, again, not necessarily there being a middle class. Uh, usually it's the people at the very top, followed by everyone else. But if there was a very bottom of this rung of, 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 of social hierarchy, it would be the slave class. Now, the slave class, you know, is never, is necessarily an easy study in the ancient world, but it's always present. There are some examples of there being purchases of 600 slave women in one transaction bought at one time in the city of, of Pylos, the Mycenaean city of Pylos. But you see this, they're often attached 
to these mid-level bureaucrats of the palace. The palace would have been filled with slaves when you saw them. Sometimes these slaves live in towns nearby. Sometimes they're given a ration of food. Uh, but there is no doubt there is a clear slave class. Now, in some cases, we do see some natural-born Mycenaeans as slaves. Um, and maybe slave isn't the best word for that either. They are clearly dependent on the, on the power of the palace. But perhaps slave, as we know of it, not necessarily the best, the best word. But they were a, a necessary part of the Mycenaean society to keep it functioning. Some of the great olive oils and grains and metals that will be exported from the Mycenaean world really come from the efforts of these slaves. And it's these exports that tell us that Mycenaean trade was very vast. It easily took over and replaced whatever the Minoans left behind. But it couldn't last forever, and the fall was coming. And after it does, the rest is history. I think one of the most troubling aspects of Mycenaean life is the fact that you have a very natural evolution of power. We know what the Greeks are going to become. We'll talk about it here in Season 2 of Wartime. But the fact of the matter is, the Mycenaeans really are only around for a few centuries before they are completely destroyed. Now, it's very troubling for us that it happened so quickly, maybe because it does tell us about ourselves. But it's also troubling because we aren't sure why it happens. And I think this is one of the, the real romantic draws and very frustrating aspects of archaeology and more notably studying the ancient world. What we can see is, by about the year 1200 BCE, something catastrophic is going to sweep through the Mycenaean world. Many of the palaces are abandoned. Many of the outlying towns are razed and destroyed. And we don't really have a good sense of why. We see many of these dense urban populations break off into smaller contingent groups in the countryside, fashioning themselves into the new form of Mycenaean life. No longer great grand kingdoms with powerful cities, but scattered communities throughout the countryside. By 1100 BCE, it's very clear, whatever happens before that, the complicated structures that really define the Mycenaean world are gone, and they are never coming back. The question we have to ask ourselves, though, is why does this happen? What could be responsible for such a great calamity? These were warlike peoples. These were a people who prided themselves on their ability to fight and defend themselves, and something swept into the Mycenaean land and took them to pieces. It literally dismantled a way of life, never to return in the history of the world. Well, this is, I think, one of the more interesting topics we can get into, but the Mycenaeans are not alone in this regard. Right around that same time, 1200 BCE, we see catastrophes occur throughout the Mediterranean basin. Egypt, the Near East, and the Hittites of Anatolia will also be attacked and devastated by a seemingly surprising outside force. We don't know who these people are. We don't know where they come from. We don't know how they're so successful. But we do know that they changed the ancient world at a fundamental level forever. The Egyptians called these people the Sea Peoples. And the Sea Peoples attacked and invaded Egypt at about the same time that the Mycenaean world collapsed. It seems like it might be a logical conclusion to draw, that if the Hittites and a group as powerful as the Egyptians 
could not stop these, quote, sea peoples, then the Mycenaeans couldn't either. The island of Crete was easily susceptible to invasion. It's how the Mycenaeans gained all their power in the first place. It does seem like a logical endpoint, but we don't know much about these sea peoples. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they're from. We've got a lot of really great theories, but they're only just that, theories. And it's one of the harsh realities of both history and archaeology, is that we may never know. But what we can talk about in these episodes, uh, aside from uh, the great sort of fertile breeding grounds, I think, of conspiracy theory, is what really happens to the Mycenaeans after this invasion and after this destruction. Because what you had at the time were many kingdoms, many what we could maybe call city-states, littering the countryside of mainland Greece. They were unique now, they all shared a language, they all shared a culture, but they all viewed themselves as politically separate. Well, that social cohesion, that glue that held them together was removed, and it fell to pieces. What we call the, the subsequent time period, when we study Greek history, is known as the Greek Dark Ages. The Greek Dark Ages. Now, why do we call them that? Well, I always like to say a term like Dark Ages, which was coined by Francesco Petrarch to deal with the Middle Ages during the Renaissance period. When we call something a Dark Age or an Archaic Age, for example, when we use terms like that, in this case, Greek Dark Ages, it always says more about us than it says more about them. Was it really a Dark Age? Or is it just a dark age for us because we don't know much about them? Well, it sort of goes hand in hand. The Mycenaean world gave us a great deal, as did the Minoan world, of cultural artifacts. It gave us poetry. It gave us literature. It gave us uh, paintings. It gave us carvings and sculptures and weapons and shields of all sorts. All of these things that tell us a lot about the people and how they lived at the time. But the Greek Dark Ages, after the fall of the Mycenaeans, gives us almost none of those things. It seems like because the, the power vacuum left by the Mycenaeans occurs, it seems that the great wheels of culture just stop turning. They stop churning out the great pottery and the great revealing stories and the enlightening histories that we've come so used to finding. And it seems that the Greek culture just sort of gets by. The Mycenaeans still exist, but they live in small, scattered remnants of a civilization, not in a civilization itself. And they are in a very difficult and precarious position. Well, it's at about the same time that another invasion comes, this time not from the Sea Peoples, not from a mysterious group of invaders, but a group of people we have a pretty good sense of. And they come from probably the northern part of Greece, heading more toward the heart of Europe, and we call them the Dorians. When the Dorians invade, they, to a degree, add a new spark of life to whatever raw material or leftovers or remains were left behind by the Mycenaeans. And as these cultures fuse, and as this, quote, Greek Dark Age continues, eventually we'll see the uh, great mechanisms of culture starting to develop once again. And the world that emerges from these Greek Dark Ages, that will last for centuries, will fundamentally change the history of Greece and the history of the world forever. We'll talk about how the Greeks emerge from that time period, that great period of stagnation, next time. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.